Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This program is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series, featuring David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. Two weeks ago, we discussed the growing controversy over allegations of Chinese interference in the past two Canadian elections. Given the tremendous response to our conversation and new emerging developments on the file, I thought we'd return to it today. David, thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me. Last time we spoke, the Trudeau government had just announced various processes to look into the subject of foreign interference in Canada's elections, including the appointment of a special rapporteur. The announcement was characterized at the time as a course correction on the part of the government in order to get control of this fast-moving story. In the intervening time, however, the course correction has proven fee-fleeting. The government has essentially returned to stonewalling on the subject, including blocking witnesses from appearing before parliamentary committees, giving non-answers in question period, and generally acting in a way that risks creating more suspicion. Let me start by just having you reflect on the developments over the past couple of weeks. What do you think explains the Trudeau government's obstinance here? Why does it seem so reluctant to answer seemingly straightforward questions? Well, there are two rules of crisis management communications. The first rule is get all the bad stuff out as fast as you can and get it behind you. The second rule is unless the bad stuff is really bad, in that case, maybe stonewalling is your best option. It's often said, quoting the Watergate affair, the cover-up is worse than the crime. But that depends on what the crime is. I mean, if you've whacked granny to death upstairs with a hatchet and there's blood all over all over the place, the cover-up is really your only choice. Um, It's it's better than confessing. I whack Grant. I mean, it might work. Whereas the alternative is certain doom. So just to continue this grisly line of thought, (laughs) that, you know, it's possible sometimes governments stonewall just by instinct and temperament, even if they don't have a big secret to conceal. They're just truculent, disagreeable people. But most often, if a government is stonewalling, it's because there's something there that they and they they don't have a good they can't figure out what to do and they get internally paralyzed you would think and just to say not to extend this but you you would think that as this has become a system-wide problem and we're seeing foreign interference in other in at the provincial level and in behalf of other parties that the liberals would be able to say at this point you see if this is not just specific to us but they're acting as if there's something very specific to them that they're very worried about yeah let me take up that point because As you say, David, one of the consequences of the government's ham-fisted approach is that the issue has evolved from being about foreign election interference to increasingly about what the government knew, when it knew it, and what it did about it. The whole thing 
feels increasingly unsustainable that, as you say, the, the, the cover-up risks becoming a bigger issue than, than the so-called crime. What, what, how do you see this playing out? Well, it depends on what the, the secret that is being concealed is. You know, may, as I say, maybe they're just truculent and non-cooperative. And when you find out what the secret is, it doesn't seem like such a big deal. But, but more likely, the secret is a big deal. They're not stupid people. So if they're doing this, there's something they really want to protect or there's someone whom they really want to protect. The system-wide problem remains really important. Canada is, look, Canada is a, a very global society. Lots of movement of people, lots of movement of capital, lots of movement of goods. And that much of the success of Canada comes about because of its global nature. And as we discussed in the last program, you, you don't get the good things without the risk of the bad things. But with good planning, you can maximize the good and minimize the bad. You want as much flow of capital as you can, but you also want to fight money alone. So, so how do you do that? It's not, you'll never have a perfect answer, but smart people can come up with good enough answers. So you would think what the government would want to say is, look, there, there's, a, there's a real problem here. We got splashed. We admit it. We didn't intend to. Here's the inventory of things we did that don't look so good. And here's our plan to co- combat it. But it does look like there's more than that, because otherwise their actions just become baffling. Let me take up the opposition party for a minute. The conservatives came out hot last week, but have since scaled back a bit. Maybe it reflects a recognition that focusing on the facts is more powerful than rhetoric about the government siding with a foreign power over Canadian interests. What's your advice to the opposition parties? How should they handle the politics? What should conservative leader Pierre Polyev be doing? I always have one piece of advice to opposition parties, as we've discussed on the on this program before, which is it's not about you, that your job is to be right. Your job is not, you're, you're never, an opposition does not bring down like the government, the government brings down itself. So you need to stand back and, and be ready. And, and one of the things, as, as we saw in the past two weeks, you need to do your own inventory because mm-hmm. uh, it is from the point of view of the Chinese state. The uh, differences between Canadian political parties are pretty meaningless and obscure, and they will they will try to penetrate wherever they can penetrate. And your ideology and theirs doesn't line up. So you just want you want to be sure that you've identified the places where you've been splashed and you're ready to be completely open about those those areas, because I as we are learning, there are areas where conservatives were also splashed and other parties, too. I'm sure that's just the way that this kind of foreign interference works. And you need to, as the opposition party, you need to present your alternative program. What would, what is your vision? And it's not just about political interference. It's about the, you have to have an answer on questions of money laundering, making sure that one of the most important things a society can do is make sure that the ownership of real estate is transparent. A full approach, which is to ban foreign buying of real estate, seems demented. You know, in, in a country like Canada, you're not going to have foreigners own real estate. I mean, you know, you can't. 35 million, 40 million people with a tiny fraction of the world's capital, but much more than that of the world's opportunity. Of course you want capital flowing and some of it will take the form of real estate. You just need to know who owns the real estate. And you don't want to be told this is Beijing, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, limit. You want to know who is the beneficial owner and is that person an appropriate participant in the Canadian economy? So those that the conservatives should be thinking, this is a chance to talk about a broad range of issues, to have a program ready to implement. And then be careful not to overshoot because what you can also do is oversell your scandal. That's, I think, a little bit what happened with in the United States with Trump and Russia, that because people began talking about Trump as if he might be an actual Russian spy, then 
all of that meant that when you got the actual revelation, which was that he was horribly compromised by, by Russia, but of course he was way too unreliable and unpredictable for the Russians to use as any kind of agent. I mean, that, 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 that what was known became dis- a disappointment compared to, you know, what, was, what had been promised. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. It's just to stay on this topic, maybe it's a coincidence, maybe it's not, but I noticed in Polyev's communications that he's adopted your previous advice to be clear that Chinese Canadians aren't a threat to our democracy, that they are the ones who are being subjected to intimidation, harassment, and even violence. That message, besides being factually correct, has, has seemed to blunt the, the government's claims that questions about these issues are motivated by racism. It leads me, David, to something I wanted to ask you about. The Hub will run an article early next week by a conservative candidate in the 2021 election who argues that the party's rhetoric and policies vis-a-vis China overreached and the extent to which Chinese Canadians voted against the party. It was as much about the party's own doing rather than election interference. It raises a broader question about Canadian policy and policy making in a context in which we have significant diaspora populations from around the world. How should policymakers manage the tensions between, say, foreign policy and the domestic temptation of diaspora politics? Do you have any advice on how to handle those tensions? Yes, no, I I agree with you that, that the conservatives have done well on understanding that Chinese Canadians are Canadians. And but in some cases, they have relatives at home. And in some cases, I mean, we've talked about this where you hear rumors that Chinese Students who are Chinese, Chinese nationals often on Canadian campuses have been surveilled and in some cases attacked if they have expressed politics that is, I mean, you hear these stories where, uh, where there are bar fights and at first it looks like just two guys got into a fight and then you realize, no, it looks more like a planned organized beating of somebody who, who is a dissident. Um, with the Chinese Canadian community in particular, I think we need to keep in mind, and again, I don't speak with any kind of expertise here, but just an outsider's knowledge. You're talking about layers of communities with different politics, some much more anti-communist, some much more nationalist, some more religious, some less. And what you're seeing here, the, the, I, this is not like, it's not like there's some tiny group that is unanimous within itself. It's a very large group that has its own politics. And a lot of these questions about the future of Chinese democracy are going to be battled inside Chinese communities outside China all over the world. And there are going to be people who say, you know, the, the authoritarian politics have made China again rich and powerful, and therefore we're sympathetic to those authoritarian politics. And and those who say we're Democrats and liberals, and we are appalled by what is being done to Chinese inside China and the success of Chinese states like Taiwan um, and to a lesser degree even Singapore have shown what is possible for mainland China. So I, I think you want to avoid both broad statements, both about communities, 
treating your own, some groups of your own citizens as aliens, but you also want to accept they do have internal politics. And, and it's absolutely legitimate to argue out inside the Canadian Chinese community and outside. What, you know, what, what as Canadians with Canadian values do you hope for from Chinese majority states, China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, to the extent you regard it as a second separate state, Singapore and others? Yeah, I would just say in parentheses, David, it seems to me where there is some incumbency on the part of Canadian politicians is to make sure that it's not saying one thing to the broader population, another thing just to small diaspora communities. We've seen instances in other countries and, and to some extent in Canada where that has, has taken place. And I, you know, I think it, at, the, at its core, Canadian policymakers need to start from the premise that policymaking needs to prioritize the country's national interests. Can I say one more thing, which is, I think Please. this is a success story, that what you're saying is, is Chinese Canadians don't seem at all reluctant to speak out about democracy in China, and they don't seem bashful about letting all Canadians, these internal debates inside their community. And all of these cases, as I understand, of foreign interference are within Chinese majority constituencies or Chinese plurality constituencies, where you have two Chinese Canadians speaking for two different visions and the Chinese state favored some against others. So this is not, this is not the local Canadian ethnic majority oppressing. This is a case of a division where we, there is not a person on this planet who doesn't have a stake in the healthy development of the Chinese state back in China, whether you are of Chinese origin or not. And this is an argument, this is not an argument we should be bashful about. And when someone says you're a racist for favoring democratic tendencies inside China. I mean, once you spell out exactly what the argument is, it seems the absurdity of it is one would say you're a racist if you think that China somehow carved off from the rest of the human race. The, the, the Chinese people form what quarter or a fifth of the human race don't want what the other three quarters or four fifths wants. Of course they do. And my hub colleagues and I spoke last week on the hub's weekly roundtable podcast about how Prime Minister Trudeau seems more isolated than, than usual on this file. It's easy to forget that he's principally responsible for taking the Liberal Party from third place to first in the 2015 election. And so a lot of current Liberal MPs own their own political success to him. Yet it feels like there have been fewer signs of support than in the past. And where they have showed up, it's tended to, uh, to defend him. It's tended to be a bit laughable. Do you think I'm overinterpreting things, David? Or is there something, something like this that starts to erode his support within his own party? Well, I think historically we have seen that the Liberal Party of Canada may be one of the least sentimental organizations <laughs> and that they take an approach to their leaders, which is very much, what have you done for us lately? And if it becomes evident that this problem is not a liberal problem generally, but a Justin Trudeau problem specifically, I, I think his, his party is not going to go down with its cap. It's his party is going to get a new captain. And maybe that's maybe what you're seeing with the operations of this may not be a case of the government engaged in a cover up against the country. This may be a case of the prime minister's office engaged in a cover up against the government. Well, well said. I want to zoom out a, a little bit, though, with our remaining time and ask about some of the broader national security issues that here at play. You've spent a lot of time thinking and writing about national security at states, including the, the roles and functions of different intelligence agencies. 
you know, one criticism that we've seen of this whole episode is uh, the case of national security officials leaking these details to the Canadian media. Is that something we ought to take seriously, David? And, and, and how, do, how should we think about that, that subject more broadly? Well, I've had the, the pleasure and privilege of knowing many people at senior levels of, of CSIS. They are a highly professional, highly nonpartisan group. They, it's, just, it's just like it's a part of their brain they don't have. They have so many other problems. So if they're, that is a sign uh, that they have truly exhausted all other recourse to alert Canada to something that they think Canada really needs to know. I mean, they, they are secret keepers by instinct and nature and belief and mission. So if they are telling you things, first, they're not telling you everything. They're telling you the minimum. And they, they are only telling you after they have failed to get a hearing from the people who they should be hearing from. I think one of the things when we talk about national security, we've talked before about why is Canada not part of the new Indo-Pacific partnership that has involved peer democracies on the Pacific Rim. Canada needs to get, and we've talked about this before, it's not in Canadian political culture to be serious about national security. We're, and this may go to deep things. This is the difference in Canada and Australia, and I think I've said this to you before. Ingrained in the Australian DNA is the knowledge that Australia is far away from its partners. The defense of Australia is always optional, and Australia has to be a major contributor to its own defense. The Canadian view of these things has always been formed by the idea that basically the imperial capital, whether it was London or certainly when it's Washington, they have no choice but to defend Canada. And therefore, Canada can be a free rider. But if Canada wants to have its voice heard and it doesn't, it doesn't want to be a dependency, then it has to contribute the way Australia does. And that means military, but that means even more important that you have to be really serious about having fully developed security agencies. And, you know, the separation of CSIS from the RCMP was very painful, but it was necessary and right. An intelligence agency and a police agency, they shouldn't be in the same building. They have different missions, different roles, um, uh, different tools. And Canada, but Canada needs to really invest in both CSIS and the RCMP, both a police, a, an effective intellig- counterintelligence police force and an in- effective counterintelligence information agency, and be ready to play in the biggest of big leagues. Maybe I'll we'll wrap up by just asking you to look ahead a bit. I said on our weekly podcast last week, David, that it feels like this issue is increasingly outside the hands of politicians. It is now up to the leakers and the media to see whether they beat the rapporteur or whatever it's called to the ultimate facts. What's your view? Well, how do you see the, the coming days and weeks playing playing out? I think one of the things that is going to play out is... Um, a lot of quiet conversations inside the Liberal Party as to how much of this is a liberal problem, how much of this is a Trudeau problem. And if they make up their mind, it's a Trudeau problem and not a liberal problem, that, that, is, that could be a very decisive event. Well, we'll be watching this uh, issue along with many others. We may have to take it back up in a couple of weeks because things are moving so fast, but we've been grateful for your insights over the past couple of weeks as we follow it. I look forward to catching up soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this special presentation of The Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. 
we greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornoski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.